We think of our negative experiences as things that we had to suffer through. But try to look, them, look at them in a positive light. God allowed us to live through those things for a specific reason. And now let's start asking, Lord, why did you allow me to go through that? Lord, do you want me to help somebody who might be suffering and struggling with the same thing? Let's all turn to Acts chapter 9. And sorry that you guys sat down, but I want you guys to stand one more time as we read our scripture for tonight. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. And when we're there, let's all read these verses together, out loud. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Thank you. You guys can take your seats. It's often discussed by both theologians and skeptics alike why it is that God, even though He is all-knowing, even though He's omniscient, why did God give Adam and Eve free will back in the garden? If God in His omniscience knew that Adam and Eve would just disobey the command to not eat of the fruit, why did God give Adam and Eve free will in the first place? What is the point if they were going to disobey Him anyways? That's an interesting discussion for sure, and I've heard a lot of heated debates about that topic, but answering that question is not my focus tonight. However, I am glad that God did give us free will. It's true that because of free will, Adam and Eve disobeyed. It's true that because of free will, tons of atrocities and, and, and evil things have been done in, throughout history. It is because we have been given the liberty to decide how we want to live our lives. But just like any tool, free will can be misused. And we've seen it misused time and time again, even to this day. But the reason why I love free will is that without free will, all of us will be robotic in nature. There would be no difference between Pastor White and myself. There would be no difference in how Andre and I will act in life and how we react to situations. All of us, if we were, had no free will and only did what we were programmed to do by God, we would just be very robotic in nature. And that wouldn't be very interesting, right? Because of free will, all of us here tonight have unique stories. We have a life of, and a trail of choices that we've made in life that has resulted in who we are today. We can all agree, when we look back at our, at our past and our background, that we've not always exercised our free will properly, right? We've all had regrets. 
We've all made tons of mistakes in our life. We've not always exercised it in ways that would please God. But all the decisions that we've made in life have shaped us into who we are today. Unique individuals. Unique stories. Unique experiences. Unique quirks and intricacies in our character. It's always a joy. When someone trusts me well enough to share their life story, I'm not just going to doze off in conversation. I'm going to be as attentive as possible because it's interesting to learn about someone's story and how unique their life is and how unique their testimony is. It's a joy for me to, to learn about the stories of other people. And I think we should all be interested in the stories of others, not just our own. My, the point of tonight's sermon is to encourage all of us to harness the unique stories and individualities that we have in order to serve God better and ultimately reach more people for Him. When we look at Scripture, we see a wide range of men and women that God has chosen to do a specific work. If you look at all the prominent names in Scripture, there wasn't and there isn't a specific type of person that God is looking for. God doesn't have like an invisible checklist that, that He's comparing us with to see if we are worthy of being used for service. Oh, He's not six foot tall. He's not worthy. Oh, He's not a certain weight. He's not worthy. No, God doesn't have an invisible checklist that He's comparing our, us with. God could use anybody. If you look at the most famous saints in Scripture, David, Elijah, Moses, Paul, Job, if you look at these five guys, really, what do they have in common besides their faith in God? Besides their devotion to God? What do they have in common? All five of those guys were unique individuals, unique characteristics, unique personalities, and God used each and every single one of them to accomplish a certain task. There is no greater example of how God could use anybody than the story of Saul, whereas we know him as the Apostle Paul. God was able to take Saul's unique background, Saul's unique strengths and skill set, in order to reach lost souls. And God can and wants to do the same with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this message that you've laid on my heart. Thank you, Lord, for just speaking to me, and I pray, Lord, that this message will ultimately speak to the hearts of all of us here tonight. I pray, Lord, that the motive for all of us is to reach more people for you, to reach more people and, 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 and give the gospel to more people, and to see more people saved before we leave this earth. And I pray that that would be the, the ambition of everyone here tonight. And I pray that you would use this message to encourage us to really pursue that task of, of reaching others for you. Be with my message tonight. Be with my voice. Be with the attention of everybody here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So let's turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, where we'll find our first point, and we'll launch, our, we'll launch off from Philippians chapter 3. And we'll be reading verses 5 to 6. And so here we find a brief overview of, of Paul's past, his history. So let's read these two verses out loud together. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, 
touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. To put it simply, Saul was a zealous Jew. Saul wasn't your average, run-of-the-mill, common Jew that you could find at any street corner of Jerusalem. Saul was, what he, as he referred to himself as, an Hebrew of the Hebrews. Saul wasn't just an, an average Jew. He grew up surrounded by the Pharisees. His father was a Pharisee. He himself became a Pharisee when he got older. He was trained under a famous rabbi named Gamaliel when he was a kid. Saul wasn't a normal Jew, Jewish man. He was an educated Jewish man. In his adulthood, Saul would go on to become a lawyer. Many scriptures imply that Saul joined the Sanhedrin. You don't know what the Sanhedrin are, who they are. They were a group of 71 men comprised of Pharisees and Sadducees who were in charge of ruling Jewish life and religion. Safe to say that these guys are, were the elite. The Sanhedrin were the religious elite, and Paul, or Saul, was part of that. Saul was very zealous for his religion. His zeal eventually led to religious extremism. We're well familiar that Paul hated Christians. Before he was converted, he hated Christians, and he did everything in his power to send them away, get them locked up into jail, get them punished and killed, so that he wouldn't have to stand seeing the Christians out and about. He, his, his zeal for his own religion led and resulted to hate for Christ, Christians and followers of Christ. With a background like that, with a history and past like that, you would assume that Saul would be the very last person that God would choose for Christian service. You would think that Saul would be at the bottom of the barrel, that there would be thousands and, and millions of other candidates that were more suited for Christian service than Saul. Why would God choose this guy? All he ever did was, uh, was persecute the followers of you. Why would you choose him? But what we find in Scripture is quite the opposite. Just like we read in, in Acts, in, on Damascus Road, Saul was converted and was called by God to serve him. Because in truth, when we look at it in, in hindsight, God was going to use the background and the experiences of the Apostle Paul for a great, for a, in, in order to prepare him for a great ministry. Because Paul was surrounded by Pharisees, and because he was well-versed in the teachings of the Pharisees, guess who knew the law better than anybody else? Saul, or Paul. He was a master of the law. More than anybody else, Saul understood that the law could not save. More than the average Jew. More than anybody else, Saul knew that the law would only bring you into bondage. More than anybody else, Saul knew that the, Saul, that, that the law would not provide salvation, that there were so many shortcomings with it. He knew that better than anybody else. Why? Because he was steeped. He had learned it in the ins and outs of the law as a Pharisee. God took Paul's familiarity with the law and used it in ministry in order to combat Judaizers, in order to combat those who would preach that the law was necessary for salvation. There were tons of people who were imposing the, the, the Old Testament laws into Gentiles, telling them that they need to be circumcised, telling them that they need to follow the Mosaic law in order to, in order to be fully saved. And Paul was used by God to combat that false doctrine. 
A lot of the doctrine that we get, a lot of the Christian doctrine that we uphold, guess who wrote about them? The Apostle Paul. God used Paul's familiarity with Scripture in order to defend it later on from those who were trying to lead others astray. Now, what other background experiences did God use from Paul's, from Paul's life? So not only was he well-versed in the law, but guess what? Paul was well-versed in the Greco-Roman culture. Now, okay, what does that mean? Because Paul was well aware of what the culture was like, he was so effective at delivering the gospel. Because depending on who the audience was, Paul knew how he should deliver the gospel. If he was preaching to the Greeks, he would preach it a certain way. If he was preaching to the Romans, he would preach it a certain way. If he was preaching to Jewish people, he would preach it a certain way because he understood the flexibility, uh, the, the different cultures. He had flexibility in, in his gospel, in his preaching. God used that. God also used the fact that he was familiar with persecution. More than anybody else, Paul knew the reality of persecution. Why? Because he was on the other side of it. He was persecuting Christians not too long ago. So we can empathize with Christians who were struggling because he knew that it was a reality, that they weren't making it up. Persecution was a reality. And so God was using everything about Paul's background to form him into this unique minister of the gospel. I could go into detail about each facet of Paul's background. But suffice it to say that all of these things shaped, all these past experiences shaped Paul into becoming the servant that God wanted him to be. Nothing was a mistake. God used Paul's background for his glory, and God wants to do the same with us. All of us have unique backgrounds and upbringings. And oftentimes, though, God wants to use our past experiences specifically the struggles that we've had, the mistakes that we've made, in order to help others who struggled and are struggling with the same thing. And you see this all throughout Christian history. Who here knows George Mueller? George Mueller, famous Christian evangelist and preacher. In his early teenage years, in, uh, at the ripe age of 14, George Mueller was already a thief, a petty thief at that. He was a liar, he was a gambler, and he spent most of his free time drinking with his friends. So at the ripe age of 14, George Mueller was already living a pretty deadbeat lifestyle, a dead-end lifestyle. This, living this way was only going to lead him, you know, if he continued in this way, George Mueller would have become a full-fledged criminal later on. Maybe he would have been incarcerated. That is the, the life that George Mueller was living as a child, as a teenager. He got saved, though, and God pulled him out from that. And changed his life completely. Now as an adult and as a minister, because of George Mueller's troubled childhood, he understood that there were many children, that there were potentially many children out in the, in the country who were unsupervised, just like he was, and had no proper influence just like he had, just like he hadn't. And so it led to George Mueller understanding the need for taking care of the children and it resulted in him creating what we, he's famously known for, his orphanage in Bristol, England. George Mueller would go on to house over 10,000 orphans from Bristol, England over the course of his years. Children who would have otherwise been criminals or, or would have been pulled into a life of drugs and drinking and, and crime, he pulled them away from that and, provide, and housed them and gave them a proper future 
because he himself understood the struggles of being a child in that country. Having been a troubled child, he knew better than anyone else how important it was to help the children, to give them a proper influence. Because the experiences that God has given us, the experiences, the childhood that God has given us, the teenagehood, the young adulthood that God has given us can reveal what it is that God is wanting us to do in the future. Other examples of this are former atheists. Atheists who once despised the Bible, who once debated others about the Bible. They get saved, and what happens? They become staunch apologists. They, before they spent their entire life trying to tear down the Bible, they get saved, and now they're trying to build up the Bible and defend it from skeptics. They were trying to help other atheists come to the truth. We see former Muslims... They go back to their people to teach them the dangers of Islam and that Jesus is the only way. A famous example I can think of is a man named Nabil Qureshi. He wrote the famous book called Seeking Allah but Finding Jesus. Nabil Qureshi passed away a couple years ago. He died of cancer. He's in heaven now. But Nabil Qureshi, he grew up in a Muslim family. He grew up in a Muslim household. They were devout Muslims. They did everything that was required of a Muslim. They were very religious. When he was in university... His best friend was named Christian. And guess what? Christian was Christian. And so they had tons of debates. They, they went back and forth for years, talking about Islam, talking about Christianity, which one was the right way. And they went back and forth, and eventually Nabil Qureshi got saved. But because of, of Christian's continued and persistent efforts to win him over to Christ, he got saved. And guess what he did? He wrote the book, Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus, a book that tries to show the fallacies of, of Islam. He went back to his people to try and tell his people, Islam is not the way Jesus is. God used his previous experiences in order to fuel his future ministry. We see celebrities and influencers, they get saved. They once partied and rock and rolled like rock, uh, like rock stars. They get saved and they turn around, now teaching their youth, now teaching the, their contemporaries that fame, riches, and followers will only leave a void in their heart. There's a famous streamer, YouTube streamer. He, just, he did just that. He was known for pranking people. He was known for doing these pranks on, in different places. He gets saved and now he has dedicated his platform for teaching about Christ teaching the people that pranks are stupid, that we should be living a proper life and trying to live a life pleasing to Jesus. We see former alcoholics, former drug addicts, they get saved and then they sober up. You know who they're ministering to? They go to those who are struggling with alcohol. With alcohol. They go to those who are struggling with drug addiction and they try to help them see the truth. They try to tell them that Jesus is the one that will give you victory over your vices. God uses our former background and hints as to what, how we should minister in the future. One of our missionaries, um, the Lowe's, he, he's, a, he's our missionary to Thompson, Manitoba. There's a, a couple of months back, there was a, a man named Raymond. Raymond lunged an RCMP, RCMP officer with a knife, right? And obviously, he was taken down. Nobody got hurt, but he was put into jail. Months later, he was out of jail. And Brother Law was surprised to see Raymond, that same guy who lunged at an RCMP officer, he went to church. So obviously people were rightfully frightened. You know, maybe he's going to stab us, maybe he's going he's to shank us too. But no, Raymond was just there to attend. A few weeks later, Raymond got saved. Not only did he get saved, but he started working for the sound booth. He started out as a sound booth worker. 
Now he, has, uh, he goes out outreach every single Saturday with Brother Lowe. He makes hospital trips to visit those who are struggling with drug addiction, or, and et cetera, et cetera. And recently, Brother Lowe said that he wants to start a bus ministry. Raymond's life completely changed. Well, it took a 180 turn. And guess who it's influencing? The RCMP officer, the one who arrested Raymond months back, saw the change in Raymond, saw how much the gospel has changed Raymond, and Brother Lowe, according to his words, that RCMP officer who he has been praying for for months is this close to receiving the gospel because of Raymond's transformation, because of Raymond's change. God used the experiences, the, the testimony of Raymond to lead another person, potentially lead another person to Christ. And his testimony continues to encourage all of the people at Brother Lowe's church. So my question is to you, what unique experiences did God allow you to live through? We think of our negative experiences as things that we had to suffer through. But try to look, them, look at them in a positive light. God allowed us to live through those things for a specific reason. And now let's start asking, Lord, why did you allow me to go through that? Lord, do you want me to help somebody who might be suffering and struggling with the same thing? Maybe you were persecuted for your faith then maybe you can encourage others who are also persecuted. Maybe you were struggling with a certain sin for years, but God finally gave you the strength to overcome it, then help and minister to those who are struggling the same way. Now, I know this was quite a long first point, but I wanted to emphasize that fact that we shouldn't just disregard our past, no matter how shameful it may be. Because a lot of us, we don't want to, look, we don't want to think about our past because it's filled with shame and embarrassment about the bad regrets that we've had, but don't despise your past that way because God might be using your past in order to minister to somebody in the future. God can use even our bad regrets for his glory. Wouldn't it be amazing if God used your past struggles, your past mistakes, your past failures in order to encourage somebody else who is struggling with the same thing? And better yet, in, to, to be used in order to lead somebody to Christ. What an amazing opportunity that would be. The reality is, I can share the gospel with anybody, but my words have varying impact on people. If I were to go up to a Muslim person, share them the gospel, there's a high chance that I wouldn't be given the time of day. Why? Because I'm Filipino. What, what part of me looks like I was ever knowledgeable about Islam? Nothing. So this has happened to me in door-to-door -door soul winning. I approach someone who is Muslim, they wouldn't give me a time of day, the conversation ends. But if you take a person who was once Muslim, but gets saved and becomes a Christian, and approaches that same Muslim person, even if it may lead to an argument or debate, at least it's given the time of day. The truth is, an ex-Muslim will have a, a greater impact on a Muslim person's life. His testimony will have a greater impact. His, his, his words will have greater impact. And, and I really think God designed it to be this way. Now, we're called to share the gospel to everybody without partiality. Just because my words may not have a, the greatest impact on a Muslim doesn't mean that I shouldn't share the gospel with the Muslim person. But God knows that he can use our experiences to have a stronger influence on those who had similar experiences. All of us can sympathize with other people's problems, but not all of us can empathize with everyone's problems. There's a difference between sympathy and empathy. I can sympathize with someone who lost their parents, but do you think I can truly understand what they feel? 
Do you think I can truly understand the sadness and sorrow that they feel? No. Why? Because I still have my parents. I've never lost my own. How can I feel what they're feeling? But you know what? I can empathize with those who were bullied and picked on. I can empathize with those who were depressed and had suicidal thoughts fill their minds for months. I can empathize with those. Why? Because I was in the exact shoes they were in. I was walking that exact same road they were in. Sympathy is needed. We're called to be sympathetic individuals. Weep with those who weep. But you know what? When you are able to empathize with somebody about their problems, it makes a world of difference. When you have a person that can come alongside you and who struggled the exact same way you did, way you did and encourage you, that makes a world of difference. This is precisely the reason why we find so much comfort and peace from the words of Jesus. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. All the temptations we face, who else faced them? Jesus Christ. And in greater severity. We've never been personally confronted by the devil. He was. He can empathize with our feelings because he had to endure the same things that we had to endure. That's the reason why Jesus is so loving, so gracious, and so long-suffering towards us is because he fully understands what it feels like to be in our shoes. That's the reason why he had to be fully human too. He understands what we are going through. So once again I ask, how will you use the personal experiences that God allowed you to go through for his glory? Who are you able to minister to and who are you able to empathize with? This is why my life verse has always been Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. The day that, the, 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 that, that year in which this became my life verse was a year of great struggle, of mental anguish, mental struggle. Years down the line, I would find that I would be approached by teenagers that I would you know, be leaders of who would approach me and say Problems that I struggled with too. The, the, the same things that always, that racked my brain, that almost took my life, you could say. Teens are coming to me now who are facing that exact same thing and are now coming to me for counsel, encouragement. And I can empathize with them. I can go alongside them and tell them that I've been where you've been and I can encourage them and empathize. But at that point in time, when I was struggling, when I was facing those trials and tribulations, I didn't understand why God was putting me through that. But years later, I understand now that God was making me experience all those things so that I could be a blessing to somebody else in the future. And I think all of us, that's what God wants us to, wants for our lives, for our past experiences to, our, our experiences to bless somebody else in the future. God is able to turn our past failures and struggles into something amazing. Now, my second point is much shorter. But again, you're there still in Philippians chapter 3. We saw first his unique background, but now we'll look look at his unique strengths. In the first phrase of verse 6 of Philippians chapter 3, it says, Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. As I've said earlier, Saul was a zealous Jew. His zeal was so great that he couldn't just sit back and, and, and stand by and watch these Christians defile the teachings that he has sworn to preserve and teach. So he took many of them away and got many of them killed. You would be hard-pressed to find a Jew who was more zealous than Saul. Then he got saved. And God wanted to use Paul's zeal. 
as a Christian, Paul couldn't just stand back either. He couldn't remain idle. He went everywhere preaching and teaching the gospel to everyone that he, could, that he came across. He, never, he endured hardship after hardship after hardship, suffering after suffering, never taking breaks, rarely slowing down and stepping on the brakes. He went 100 miles per hour for Jesus Christ. You would be hard-pressed to find a more zealous Christian than the Apostle Paul. You see how zeal, that same zeal that persecuted Christians was the same zeal that God transformed in order to form and, and, and create one of the most effective Christian ministers in history. God used Paul's zeal for his glory. Now what else, what other skill sets did Paul have? Let's turn to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. And in, on, in verse 6. In verse 6 it says, But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead I am called in question. Another strength that Saul had was his intelligence. Saul also had great knowledge about the word of God. Saul also had great loyalty to the word of God. He was a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee too. And, and even though we see the Pharisees in a, in a negative light, usually, because they played a villainous role in the New Testament, always you know, going against Jesus Christ, but we can give them credit. You know why? Because at least the Pharisees were loyal and faithful to the Old Testament. They did their part to study the, the entirety of the Old Testament, to really know the ins and out of the Old Testament. The Sadducees, they only acknowledged the first five books of the Old Testament. The Pharisees acknowledged it all. So there's that at least. The Pharisees could be commended in that area at least. So Saul being a Pharisee meant that he was well-versed in Scripture. He was one of the greatest uh, spiritual teachers of that time. And because he was a Pharisee, Saul had great experience teaching and leading and being a leader. Because at that time, the Pharisees were the spiritual leaders. So even before his conversion, Saul was already a great teacher and a great spiritual leader. So it's no surprise that when Saul was converted, God used Saul's zeal and boldness. God used his intelligence. God used his logical discourse. God used his knowledge of Scripture. God used his ability to teach. And God used his ability to spiritually lead others in his future ministry. And you see all those six things in all in his life, in Paul's life, how God used each and every single one of those strengths in order to fuel the ministry of the Apostle Paul. God maximized the effectiveness of each of those strengths, and that's what God does. The thing is, we all have unique strengths. We all have things that we're good at, that God has allowed us to be good at. When we use it for ourselves, and when we use it to satisfy and gratify our own flesh, you know, we'll impress people. But when we give it to God and dedicate it for ministry, He's going to maximize the effectiveness of those said gifts and strengths. In 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11, it says, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Now, this passage specifically speaks about the fact that each believer is given a spiritual gift. When you get saved, God gives you a spiritual gift. Like maybe it's exhortation, maybe it's the gift of faith, giving, helps, mercy, teaching, whatever it may be, God has given you a spiritual gift. And this spiritual gift is not acquired because you are so great. This spiritual gift is not acquired because you are so special. It is a gift of God. And God wants you to use this gift to minister to other people, to serve other people, so that ultimately Christ can be glorified. But it's not just our spiritual gifts, but all the different skills and strengths that we have, they're also all given by God. All the things that you are good at, all your natural talents, were afforded to you only because of God's grace. As I've said, the beauty of humanity is how unique we all are. Just like snowflakes, God created each of us in a unique way. Psalm 139.14, we all know this verse, but I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you believe that tonight? Despite your past, despite your failures, do you still believe that God has wonderfully made you to be the person that he wants you to be? Understanding the spiritual gifts that God has given you. Understanding the skills that he has allowed you to cultivate. Understanding the unique personality, even your personality, Understanding the unique personality that God gave you at birth, all these things will give you an insight on new or better ways in which you can serve God. Now, I'm not at all saying that we shouldn't attempt to serve in ministries that we are not naturally good at. You know, just because you don't feel comfortable sharing the gospel, just because you're not comfortable, you're not very good at soul winning, doesn't mean you shouldn't soul win. There's still a command that you must obey. It does not make you exempt from Jesus' command. And again, if we only ever did things that were in our comfort zones, we would never grow. We would become stagnant. If we, do that, if we only do that which we are capable of, God can never lead us to do something amazing. So again, I'm not trying at all to say that we shouldn't do things that are outside of our comfort zones. What I am trying to say is that when we understand our unique strengths, the church body, Grace Baptist Church, will benefit as a whole. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. One of the last few passages we'll turn to. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 20 to 22. And let's, just, uh, let's read this out loud together. But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. God designed our human bodies in a way that makes each part of it necessary and useful for some sort of bodily function. Each part of our body, each member of it, has an area of strength and a bodily function that it is specifically responsible for. It was designed that way by God. We use our eyes to... See, we use our ears to hear. We use our arms to, our hands to hold and grip things and, and do very intricate things with. We use our feet and our legs to walk. Each part of the body has a specific function and strength. That it, and strength. But let's say 
one day, the next, uh, tomorrow, you decided that, you know what, I'm done walking with my feet and legs. I'm going to start just walking using my arms and hands. And instead of using my hands to write and to hold things, I'm going to start using my feet. I'm going to live an upside-down life. What are you doing to yourself? You are significantly handic- you're intentionally handicapping yourself. Because are the arms meant for walking? No, that's not what God designed them for. Are the feet designed for holding things, doing specific, very intricate things with? No. Some people have to live lives like that because they don't have certain limbs. But as a normal individual, hands are meant for gripping, feet are meant for walking. And when each part of the body, each member of the body is doing the role that it's responsible for, the body performs optimally, right? Everything, when every member of the body is doing its job and is firing at all cylinders, the body is performing optimally. The church is compared to what? A body. Comprised of different members, each of us, different members of this particular church body. So we need to understand our areas of strength so that the church body can perform optimally. Each individual must serve the best they can in an area that that, that best suits them. Because problems will occur when parts of the body are unwilling to do their part. A famous exercise in weightlifting is the deadlift. They say that this is the true measure of a man's strength, is how much weight you can pick up from the floor. And people, you know, have dedicated their entire lives to increasing their deadlift. But a lot of beginners, when they see a bar, when they set the barbell up to do, to do a deadlift, the first thing they do, a, lot of, a common mistake is they lift the barbell using just their back. And what usually happens when you keep doing that again and again, you get injured. You, you, you bust something on your back. You break something. You're going to be in a wheelchair soon enough if you keep doing it that way. But the proper way to lift it is all your legs has to be incorporated. Your back has to be working together in tandem in order to lift this weight off the ground. If the legs weren't involved in that equation, you would get injured. In a church body, if people are responsible for something and their strength is their ministry and they don't do their ministry, the church body will suffer as a whole because we're one. But the church body will also hurt when certain members of the body do that which they are unsuited for. Leadership is a great example. Not everybody is suited for leadership. And again, a lot of people will outwardly say that they are not the leader, the leader type. But not being suited to, be, to being a leader shouldn't be a cause of shame. You shouldn't be ashamed that you're not qualified to be a leader. That shouldn't be something that you, you, you got to hang your head low and, and, and mope about it. Because no... The Bible is clear that whether you be the leader or whether you be one of the more feeble members of the body with a lesser role, guess what? Everybody is necessary in order for the church body to optimally, uh, optimally act. Every single member of the church is important and has something that they are best suited for. It doesn't matter. There's a, 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 a woman in our church who I, I still consider to be part of our church, even though we never see her, is Miss Hing. She's, she's uh, um, very old, high, high up in years. She's um, seniors home, I believe, 70s. But 
I still believe, firmly believe that she is supporting our church through prayer. And that is the best. Like, she, maybe there's a lot of blessings that we received because of Miss Hing's prayer. And she might, we might think, oh, she's not doing anything for the church. She's not doing any of this decorating, organizing, leading. No, that's not the proper mentality because she is praying for our church. She is doing the best that she is able to do. Even a lesser member like her is still necessary for our church body. And what I'm encouraging us to do is all of us need to be involved in some way. The reason we had a workers' banquet just a couple weeks ago was to honor everybody in our church who volunteer and do what the pastors can't do. If the church was the way it is and the pastors were responsible for running it all, we would be running around like headless chickens. We would be running around panicking. And our ministry will greatly suffer from it. And the reason we're so appreciative of, of volunteers and workers is because this church would not exist and would not run without the time and sacrifice of the workers and volunteers. We all need to be involved in what, way we, what ways we can. You have a unique strength. You have unique skills. How can you use that for God? In 1 Corinthians 6.20, it says, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. We've been bought. Our life is not our own. Let's not spend our lives, let's not take our skills and our gifts and our strengths and use it selfishly. God owns us. God has bought us. Let's use our skills and strengths in a way that will bring glory to the one who has given us those things. Serve him the best way you know how. So I urge everyone here to ask God how he could further use your strengths, skills, and gifts. Because if we all earnestly ask God and have the initiative to obey God's leading, our church will only get stronger for it. I'm looking forward to next, next year's workers' banquet. I'm looking forward to the fact that it will probably grow and we'll see more workers and volunteers and more people getting involved we all need to get involved in what ways we can. And as I conclude, most of us, including myself, want to be used by God to do something great. Not because we want to be praised by others, because, but because we all have that desire to make an impact and leave a life that points to Jesus. I've thought long and hard about the subject, and I actually struggled with this a lot. And I've always asked myself, how can God use me, Ivan Pagalunin, to do something great? I don't have the awe-inspiring testimonies like some people do. I was raised in a Christian household with good parents, good siblings. I wasn't rescued from a life of drugs, debauchery, and worldliness. I wasn't some atheist who fought long and hard about my faith. My testimony is just ordinary. And honestly, at times I despised it. And the reason why this thought prevailed is recently I was asked to write a small little biography for the church website. You know, the testimony of the pastors were listed on the website and have like our life testimony there. And I was reading their, the other pastors' testimonies and it was all interesting. And it was all pretty cool. They all had uniqueness to it, you know, a unique flavor to it. But mine was just I grew up in a Christian household and I got saved at church. And honestly, if I'm being honest, I despised my ordinary testimony. It's funny to say that, but I despise the fact that my testimony was so simple 
and that my background was so ordinary. Because you sometimes you see these, you hear about these extraordinary testimonies, and people, upon hearing that testimony, they already get moved. They don't even have to do anything else. They just have to say their testimony, and people are already moved by their testimony. And I despise the fact that I, my testimony isn't like that, or at least I perceived it not to be like that. So how can God use me? My background and my upbringing, my past, isn't all that impressive or interesting. Another question that I always struggle to answer, and I struggle to answer it not because I'm, try, I'm, I, I'm trying to put on an air of humility, but whenever I ask, someone asks me, Ivan, what are your strengths? What are you good at? I legitimately always struggle with that question because I toss and turn. What actually am I good at? The list of skills that I have are very few, and I don't think they're even that impressive. And so from a background perspective, I've been, I'm ordinary. From a skills perspective, I'm nothing special. How can God use me to do something great? At least with Paul, he was a smart man. He was educated. He was intelligent. He had all of these good personality traits about him. I could see why you could use him. But how, how can you use me? Lord, are you, are you being honest with the fact that you can use anybody? I mean, you use Paul because he was so smart, but can you really use an ordinary person? And I struggled and I hemmed and hawed about this topic. And I truly was down in the dumps for being average. But when I read the New Testament, I found a man who was a contemporary of Paul and was equally influential in that day, equally as effective in ministry in that day. And what was his name? It was Peter. Simon Peter. Compared to Paul, he was as ordinary as one can be. He wasn't some sort of elite Pharisee or knowledgeable Pharisee. He was a fisherman by trade. A very common job at that time. He had a wife. He lived an ordinary life. Nothing really stood out about Peter's skill sets besides his ability to fish. And even when he went fishing, remember? He couldn't even get any fish. So how good was he really? So Peter was a very ordinary guy. You can look at his character and his personality and you could see that it was deeply flawed. He, had, he was impulsive. He was, pride, he was, he was prideful. But even though he was ordinary, God still used Peter to do something great. Why? Because God is willing to use anyone as long as they're willing to be used. It doesn't matter if you're some sort of super talented guy like the Apostle Paul or just an ordinary guy like Peter. God is willing to use you if you're willing to be used. And I know that sounds like a negative thing. We always tell people, don't, don't let other people use you. Don't let other people exploit you and trample over you. But with God, is a good thing. To be used by God is, some, is a great blessing. It doesn't matter what background or past you have. It doesn't matter how much you failed and how much regrets you have about the past. It doesn't matter what skills you possess. God can use you. Every single one of us. God will use your past and your skills in ways that you could never imagine. But only if you're willing to give it to Him. Those who leave everything in God's hands will eventually see God's hand in everything. Right now, we might not understand why we are the way we are. Why God allowed us to experience certain things. Why God makes our personality the way it is. Why we have these certain skill sets that we have. But if we give these things over to God, 
if we allow ourselves to be used by God, I know that he'll be able to do great things through each and every one of us. Whether you're closer to the Paul or you're closer to Peter, he can use every single one of us here tonight. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.